I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. episodes we've done so far I've kind of occasionally nipped at it's a topic I've always been really interested in uh, but kept trying to figure out a way to to, to talk about it uh, you know needing a, a sort of context to talk about it in because it's very broad very very mind-bending if you if if I just sat down and started discussing it so Really, what what it is, is talking about what the economy of the future is going to look like. And again, this is a a hard one for, for, depending on which rabbit hole you go down, it's a hard one for people to wrap their minds around. And uh, finally, think I got a a way to at least put it into a context where we can can talk about it while still having something uh, to ground us. The the problem is the context that, that I came up with was... Uh, Star Trek. Space, a final frontier. Uh, Takes place in the future. They, uh, at least in some iterations, go into aspects of of their economy. What, you know, uh, I guess Gene Roddenberry and the other showrunners conceived of an, of an economy in the future. And uh, the problem is, of course, I'm not really a Star Trek fan. Uh, I, I really prefer my uh, space-based science fiction to involve laser swords and Wookiees. Uh, I'm not... I don't think Star Trek... I, I've seen a couple of the movies. Uh, I have uh, seen a couple episodes of the shows throughout my life. But it never really captured me uh, the same way you know Star Wars did. 
So I need somebody. I needed somebody who could speak uh, at an at a uh, educated level about Star Trek, and so I got a, a buddy of mine, uh, Gus Shepard, to come on and be my Star Trek expert. Gus, how you doing? I'm good. Good day. And uh, aside from knowing, uh, again, not a high bar to get over, but knowing uh, a lot more than me about Star Trek, uh, give us a little bit of your background. Well, uh, I got a master's degree in economics with Dave here, and uh, go go blue devils. <laughs> blue de- I believe, yeah. yeah, we're nerds, so we're not. Uh... I was well, <laughs> at least for me, I, I wasn't really going to DePaul for the sports teams. Uh, right. I understand we had a good basketball team, but right. uh, my my dad tells me he respects them a lot. <laughs> right. And then, of course, like you know, I I root for my my uh, undergrad uh, school. Right, of course, the go formative ba- years. Go Badgers, mm-hmm. uh, and we actually you know do well at things like football. So you know, go Blue Devils, but I don't think I've ever been to a game. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, went to DePaul with me, and then. Uh, and now, now I'm a healthcare analyst. All right. So, and and of course a uh, a Star Trek fan. That's correct. Uh, and again, no no hate coming from uh, uh, the Star Wars fan here. Oh no, I mean I am also a Star Wars. Fan. It, it's hard not to be. Uh, for me, it is a you know a little bit more of an epic fantasy versus a political philosophical sci-fi. Well, and, and I will say, you know, with, with Star Trek, it's one of those things that a lot of friends who are fans of the, the shows, the you know, the whole franchise, the whole universe, and every time they explain it to me, I'm like, yeah, that sounds like something I'd probably be into. And uh, just, you know, hey, the, the new movies are pretty good, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, every time I've watched the, uh, you know, the, the TV series, the various TV series, I'm like, yeah, that's fine but not really it's never really pulled me in uh, I, I I once got yelled at quite a bit by saying I didn't understand why people like the Wrath of Khan because it's a fine movie but it's not that good uh, and I'm sure I'm gonna get angry Facebook posts for saying that on here but well I, I think I understand because it's I think it was a good movie in 1983 yeah well and and part of me uh, we'll, we'll we'll finish up with Star Trek movie reviews in a sec, but yeah, part of me feels like uh, for for the emotional moments of that movie to hit you, you have to have been with right, these you, characters right. for a while. And I'm a like, Star Trek fan. I'm like, hey, William Shatner, he was in Boston Legal. Uh, <laughs> so so yeah, so but you know, one of the aspects that um, you know when when friends of mine talk about their love of Star Trek, they they talk about its uh, the sophistication of the the science fiction involved and in that you know between Gene Roddenberry and the people that came after him they really built out a universe and, and and a world and and in this kind of through this lens of futurism and I gotta say I don't know how you apply for a job but I would love the job title of futurist like that looks good I know I noticed cover. some people have that job I I like no one in high school told me that was a job you could have right? what what is the degree program <laughs> that that leads you down that track that sounds so cool um, but yeah so the the kind of futurist view that these guys were taking and and like I say I think their take on a lot of this can be uh, 
can create an instructive context to talk about the future of our very real economy and how it's changed, how it's been changing over the past 20, 30 years and what we might potentially actually expect to see from it 50, 100 years into the future. And, and again, I think Star Trek gives us a, a little bit of a grounding and, and hopefully enough of my listeners are also Star Trek fans. So it, it'll help them kind of understand the economics that we're talking about. So broad strokes, what is the economy of Star Trek? Oh, well, there is a, that is a matter of some debate. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll lay out the, the, the groundwork. Roddenberry insisted that money was not a thing. Okay, so we're it, dealing in a world with no currency. No currency, at least in the Federation. Okay. Now, he insisted upon that, but it is... We, we have, as, as, as Trekkies, we've come to understand that it probably more... It was probably more accurate to say it was a world where they did not value and consider wealth in the same way we do. Okay. There I mean, was how, still... how, how, how so? Well, you know, the, the next generation is famous for continuing, continuing Roddenberry's work in this particular category with specific episodes that address it. And they really say, we no longer value our self-worth by our material incomes. And, you know, we don't value other people that way. You you know, it's just a society that says your worth is not tied to your raw economic productivity. Okay. And so, you know, then then self-worth and and valuation of others is is then based on higher ideals of, you know, their performance or or things like that. So if if I'm if if I am a... uh, new recruit into the federation got my red shirt on uh <laughs> you uh obviously not a star trek fan. no i'm really not the, so the, the federation is the system of government okay okay so, okay. so starfleet is what you're talking starfleet, about you're saying okay. new recruit to Starfleet. new recruit to starfleet got my got my uniform i made it through whatever the initial training period mm-hmm. is um I don't receive a paycheck of any sort because again, no no currency. So I mean, my is my reward essentially just the the value of the job I'm doing. It uh, I actually think it is, and this is really going to apply to the rest of our conversation. I think the reward is you, it's not like you know work is its own reward type mm. of subject. That's that's not what they're talking about. They're saying uh, the amount of respect. The, the amount of social, the, the amount that, that, that society is going to value you as a human being from an, but it's, it's like, it's, you know, it's separated from economics, but it's like, if you're in Starfleet, you know that you are, you know, in the best of the best, you're capable, you've pursued your dream, other people are going to look up to you. There's, a, you, you go around knowing that you're doing very important things, you're helping a lot of people. You hold some of the highest standards a society can have for an individual. You know, the members mm-hmm. of Starfleet are held to much higher standards than anybody else in the Federation. You know, they're in charge of first contact. They're in charge of not, you know, they, they have their, I forgot what it's called. What? Prime directive. Prime directive, that's right. They have their prime directive, 
where they can't, you know, they can't essentially destroy a primitive society mm. by interacting with them. And think about the amount of, you know, that that the amount of pressure in the Prime Directive, you know, is is shouldered by everybody in Starfleet. You know, you you can accident each individual member of Starfleet could accidentally destroy an entire civil entire alien culture. Mm. And so when you get that job, you know, the idea is the value to you is that idea that as as a person you have worked hard and you have made it to a certain status. Okay. Well and then of of course now I have to ask as a you know the, the, the I think the natural instinct both for myself and, and, and I'm sure most of the listeners out there is to hear that and, and have the uh, the the free market capitalist part of your brain go this is a bunch of hippie nonsense like yeah. how could we live in a world without a paycheck yeah uh, but I, I think it's uh, you know at, at least in the realm of economic theory when you kind of step back from what we know and what our comfort zone is as far as jobs go uh, it's not inconceivable you know again uh, work is about uh, compensation but that compensation does not does not necessarily have to involve dollars or, or, or currency of any kind that compensation can be the, the 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 economic theory is going all the way back to Smith still apply if you take currency out basically currency has always just been a workaround it just makes life easier for everybody if instead yeah, of... it's a facilitator of trade. Yeah, if instead of me having to bring, you know, 40 deer skins to the grocery store to buy my groceries, I can just bring some paper and we can trade it and we all just agree that it's worse. Actually, deer skins is an interesting example because it was used as currency in some yeah. places, right? It's like skins were such a great... Uh, salted cod also used. Right, right. Uh, yeah. So... Chickens... You know, since, since currency, and, and I've covered this in a, a several recent episodes, since currency is really just, again, a workaround, uh, it's not out of the realm of uh, conceivable that an economy could still operate without a currency. Uh, it's just weird. Uh, again, for, for people mm-hmm. who have spent their entire lives in the lives of the generations before them relying on I do the work you give me some money uh, and so that I think that that would be one of the harder transitions if 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 we assume that uh, the the futurists who who worked on Star Trek were right and we would eventually the, the future holds a, a, a world without currency that's going to be one of the harder transitions my, my personal opinion is that Roddenberry was was wrong um, I don't think currency will ever disappear. Mm. Uh, and even in Star Trek, you, you really see all the writers wrestling with this. You know, every episode they talk about it, you know, some, you know the writer's obviously like, how am I going to justify this trade interaction without there being currency? Well, and, and, and really I, they don't. I think I've seen it brought up before is that they do break the, the, the rule at times because obviously you said and, and there's no currency within the federation but they deal with people outside of the federation so mm-hmm. if they need to buy if, if they swing in at a um, Klingon outpost are the Klingons part of the federation? that's correct okay. no they're not part of the federation okay, you're right good. okay I guessed right on that yeah and uh, you know need to buy supplies mm-hmm. like 
if the Klingons use currency, right? They Every have other the, alien culture uses currency yeah. in the in the show. Uh, so, I mean, you could you know, especially in a, in a a, organi- a closed organization like Starfleet, you could probably operate without currency because it's not it's an exploratory but it's a basically a military right, organization it's military. Yeah. so you're it's you logistical know, everything's been provided your, your food your clothes your right. your rations you requisite things yeah so and, and and again we'll get into you know how that's all provided but if that's all provided then yeah you really don't need money if you're aboard the uss a member of starfleet yeah, yeah. Or, or really any any ship in starfleet you know again when it's dinner time, you go down to the the mess hall and you yeah. eat. Uh, so yeah, so again, unlikely. I I think you're right. Currency is just too uh, too good of a workaround for the issue of exchange. Mm-hmm. That you know how how much value we place on it and how much value uh, or how much worth we place on the acquisition of it may change. Uh, in in a future society, but kind of you know even if all that all it is is numbers on a on a mag- that are read by a magnetic strip on a debit card, even if there's no actual coins and paper, but we're tracking you know numbers go up, numbers go down. Yeah, on on our personal that, debit card. That's obviously the future of money. Yeah, that 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 is still currency. Yeah, it's just now. Uh, an amount of it's going to be amount of, of, of social credit mm-hmm. to buy energy or goods, right? And uh, I believe Justin Timberlake cracked that uh, that theory in in the, right, the that one movie where they had time. Yeah, where you yeah. purchased time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, futurist, that famous futurist Justin Timberlake. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, again, I, I agree with you. The the I think the future will always hold some concept that would be recognizable as currency, just because it, it it makes life way too easy to have that, uh, and way too difficult to not. Uh, so, going into the the yeah the rest of the you know the Federation economy, what else are we looking at here? Well, I mean, given that. The idea that there's no currency in the Federation really, it just doesn't seem to work well, and they've never really tackled it well in the show. If we put that aside and mm-hmm. look at how they actually portray the way people have goals, what kind of quote unquote wealth they're trying to accumulate, um, and then how things, I mean, the economy, first of all, there's, there's nobody in poverty in the Federation. Okay, and and from my my loose understanding, and and yeah, feel free to give me a, a lengthy correction on this. But if, effectively, it, it seemed from what I've seen that within the Federation, they've they've gotten to a point where resources are essentially unlimited. Well, basic resources are. Yeah, you know, food, if you say if you food. say I need to feed myself, I need to house myself, mm-hmm. at least at the level that were that we're used to now right the the idea of like this apartment i live in the water and electricity and gas that i use the food that i eat uh that's all trivial so so basic subsistence has uh, the the elements of it have become 
so prevalent, so so inexpensive as to basically be be free. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I understand that right. Yeah, and it's because you're making food out of right. It's not that they're totally free. It's just that they've become part of the safety net in a way that. Let's see what would be the same. Almost like. You know, there's almost roads everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. and it's just like it's just such. You know, the the government provides those things at relatively low cost to the economy. They're such an integral part of the economy that we would never blink an eye if a government said we need to fix this road. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody's always in favor of that. And in Star Trek, it's almost like that's all subsistence level economics. Okay. And and again, you know that having a, a situation like that requires certain advances in technology but it creates a, an, an interesting dynamic where you you take out kind of that that bottom tier of of the of the economy where you don't need to you don't those jobs that that would pay below a subsistence wage or at a subsistence wage um, those jobs disappear well in Star Trek they don't really? actually yeah okay not entirely what happens is that those jobs have to become uh, very easy or comfortable or rewarding jobs mm. somehow so that people volunteer to do those things. Remember, people aren't necessarily given, they, they certainly aren't motivated to take a job by a paycheck. There may be some mechanism that they get slightly more credit to do certain things. Certainly, there are people who uh, can, you know, not the average person can't afford to have a starship yeah because there are privately owned starships in the federation um and so the question is how do those people get that it's probably that they worked very hard and rewarded in some way that's hard to see obviously the show focuses on the military branch Mm. of the society so you don't actually see a lot of the economics you you don't see the guy farming a field right but what you do see is somebody somebody for instance picking grapes all day because they find it relaxing and they have they, they're good at it they like you know they maybe they like growing things like and, and even today you see people who who choose to be farmers and you know some sort of artisan mm-hmm. farming where they're really not looking to get any larger they're really not looking to become an industrial farming process they're just hoping that they can you know grow things or have have goats and sell their goat's milk to, to a goat cheese maker, you know. Well, well, and like I say, what you're talking about there does actually have grounding within, uh, you know, economics in that Adam Smith talks about inequalities in wages and the variables that cause those inequalities. And one of them, one of the trade-offs would be uh, trust or responsibility. And so, like you were saying, with if you're a member of Starfleet, it's great because you get all this status that comes with being a member of Starfleet, and and that has a, that has a kind of currency all of its own. But the 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 reason the the trade off of that status is that you live your entire life uh, with the you know in potentially in imminent danger, uh, with the possibility of again accidentally wiping out whole civilizations, things like that, and so. The, the trust reposed in the members of Starfleet needs to be compensated in order to get people to join Starfleet. So Starfleet, because they can't compensate them with 
money, they have to compensate them with status. Mm-hmm. The guy growing grapes back on Earth uh, doesn't get that same kind of status in, in the society, but he also has a pretty relaxing job. You know, he doesn't... Right. Generally, he does not have to worry about uh, the Borg descending on his grape, yeah. uh, his uh, winery and... and right. uh, Integrate, integrating, what's the word? <laughs> right, absorbing, absorbing it into the uh, you know he collective. just he yeah. just really has to grow his grapes, right? And and he's not he doesn't have to worry about wiping out whole civilizations. And even more important, he doesn't have to worry about making a profit. There's mm-hmm. no one saying you know if all his grapes die, he doesn't say, oh my gosh, how am I going to feed my kids? He goes, you know what? Next, I've learned my lesson. Next year, I'm going to do better at growing grapes. You know, it's very low. It's like there's like no real huge risk in the economic risk in the society. It's mm. like when you're doing the things, you're doing them simply for, you know, it's like you could become the greatest grape grower in the world or just in your town. Well, when I have to imagine that the existence of that uh, allotted margin of error for, again, a grape grower to try a, a different way of growing Mm -hmm. grapes and it fails and they lose that whole crop again ties back around to for that that kind of system to exist you would have to be pushing the the upward limits of the amount of total resources so that that particular crop of grapes dying is is marginal it's not gonna oh yeah it's not gonna drastically affect the supply and like we've talked about you know, in a world of Star Trek, you could have an almost unlimited grapes. Yeah. I mean, there's just, you know, you could grow them in space. Mm-hmm. And, and and so, you know, for, like I say, for that kind of uh, relaxed, non-profit motivated uh, economy to exist, the, it's, it's not necessarily pie in the sky. It just has that requirement that we would need to get to a point of efficiency uh, and and uh, and again have have the option of again there's only so much land you can only grow so many grapes but if you can start growing grapes in space space well, is infinite so yeah. I mean in the world of Star Trek population stabilized mm-hmm. somewhere around you know seven billion mm-hmm. so there's plenty of space on the planet yeah and and so you know under those conditions you would hit you could theoretically push that upward limit of what would be considered unlimited resources to the point where yeah the profit motive is no no longer really driving everything because you know again the loss of one crop is not going to affect the global price of grapes and in fact what you really see in the show having to do with the economics of nobody really nobody has to worry about falling on their faces or falling off the safe safety net what you see is people embracing the natural human instinct instinct to innovate all the time no matter Mm. what they're doing they're taking a lot of risks not safety risks but they're taking a lot of what we consider economic risks which don't really exist in that society to really find an entirely new way of of growing grapes well they're they're trying new things like i mean we hit it right on the head it's innovation and that's something that i think really applies to uh, our modern economic transition that we're finding ourselves in which again i think is a an an interesting rabbit hole to go down which is you know 
here, at least in, in the U.S. And, and the industrialized world, what you're seeing is jobs uh, largely, you know, uh, rapidly being replaced uh, or, or completely eliminated by automation. You know, again, the, there's the, the, we leave the political arguments for where jobs are going outside of this as an economics podcast. And at least from the economics point of view, the jobs really aren't drifting to other people. They're drifting to robots. Uh, they, they, you know, the jobs that used to exist and, and in some cases used to pay incredibly well are able to be done by a mechanical arm or a computer processor. So that job... Or in Vermont, a mechanical milker. Yep. And, and so it just that job's just gone. It's off the table. And people look at that today and say, isn't that a tragedy? But is it? My opinion, no. I mean, certainly there... I can, you know, I, I have dealt with this moving from Vermont to the city mm. where... There are some things I used to do that were that were work that having you know cut those cut those out of my life because urban living is just so different. I've you know there there are mental and physical health costs mm. that I need to adjust to and adjust my lifestyle. Mm. So like I started running for the first time in my life the other day because <laughs> I'm just not getting enough exercise. Yeah. And it blew my mind because I was like, well, I never had to do this in Vermont. Why? Because, you know, I had to go split wood every weekend. Mm-hmm. And that and, uh, burning enough calories doing right, that. Right. Or, or even getting places in Vermont, you know, hiking. In the, there, there are certain costs to not having these jobs. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I, you know, a healthcare analyst. I see, you know, the massive rise in diabetes because nobody has a job where they're working anymore. And we haven't, as a society, adjusted to the fact that we can't just eat bacon all the time. Yeah. Well. <laughs> but. that To me, that's not a question for society. That's a question for medical science. Don't tell me I can't eat bacon all the time. Figure out a way. Yes. Obviously, we're working on it. <laughs> but from... You know, if you really pull back and say, you know, would you have liked to be uh, the people I grew up around were dairy farmers that worked really hard? No. Uh, those people work way harder than I would ever like to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the sweet spot for me was that, you know, I could haul maple sap for, bio, for boiling syrup a few times a year, you know, getting a little physical labor, a little fresh air, but like almost as a hobby. Like mm-hmm. these things done as a hobby are very healthy. Actually, having these jobs are very difficult. Yeah, and, uh, um, and I'm the, brutal in, in right. some cases. The jobs that we've lost are not necessarily jobs that we would like to have in the economy. And certainly people at the time, when they were like, these jobs will go away, uh, you know, there's a bit of a panic. Like, oh. like because, but because that's how the economy works then. You know, this over time, the economy changes so fast that like, you know, we're in a panic about losing these some of these jobs now. Somebody's talking about, you know, my, my roommate's always telling me AI will take my job. <laughs> and I'm like, AI will not take my job. And I'll tell you why. Because, you know, we already code five times more efficiently than we did three years ago. Mm. In my particular field, uh, we're all doing five times as much work. You know what the consequence was? Mm. We didn't fire 80% of the people in my department. Our clients expect 400% more output from us. And, and again, that, that to me is, is a, a fascinating idea when, when dealing with that kind of futurist notion is, again, if you, if you extrapolate 
the idea of technology incre- increases in technology allowing for greater efficiency. And again, the, the logical end result is eventually there will be no labor because we'll have automated everything. And then we're just... No, sitting. are you talking about physical labor? Yeah. yeah. And, and we're just kind of sitting here dreaming up cool stuff. And that sounds great. But the evidence actually works to the contrary because we've been innovating and, and increasing our, our technology at, at what would be considered an exponential rate for the past 10,000 years, ever since the first caveman you know, tied a, a piece of rock to... Uh, a long enough stick and figured out he could chop down a tree with that. Um, the workday hasn't changed. And, and again, especially in the past 30, 40, 50 years, we're, we're in this crazy upswing where technology keeps doubling and, and advancing at, a, at a mind-boggling rates. But again, the, work, the standard work week is still 40 hours. We're not increasing our leisure time. We're increasing the expected amount of output uh, that's what that, that's the bar that slides, and I wonder if some of that is just we would have a hard time mentally adjusting to okay, you're you're doing your job, your your the technology's letting you keep your output steady. So what we're going to say is you're actually going to work fewer hours a week, and, and we're going to start reducing that down. I think we just were conditioned. To, to think about, like, no, work is eight hours a day, five days a week, 40 hours a week. And, and if I didn't have, if I had a job that was only 20 hours a week, I'm somehow losing out. I'm either not going to get paid as much or uh, lose some status as being a part-time employee or something like that. But, you know, it always circles back to, again, since that first caveman invented that first tool, you know, a, a world without labor, without physical labor, a world of essentially open leisure uh, in Smith's definition of leisure. Isn't that what we've been working for this whole time? Isn't that what every successive generation is, is pushing towards? We keep trying to make things more efficient. My thought is always, isn't the logical end goal of that uh, a world where basic work is completely eliminated. Well, I would counter by saying somebody who looked at me, somebody 400 years ago who could see what I do for a living would say, this man does not work. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. That's, I, I, I guess there is a relative aspect to that. There is also, I would argue that when people innovate, they're not necessarily innovating in order to, it's not purely to do less work. There's always, and as economists, we know this really well, right? There's always this decreasing marginal return. So mm. there's a decreasing marginal return on less work. So we innovate both to work less and to get more out of the less work that we do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's really the pattern you've seen. I, I would also argue that along those lines, we do have, I mean, if, if you talk about much longer scales of time than just the last 50 or 100 years, and I feel like the problem with looking at shorter scales of time is you have a lot of cultural influence mm. that kind of scrambles the economic choices. 
Um, if, if you look back a thousand years, you know, we, we all work half as many hours as, as, I mean, the median work week is half as many hours as it was a thousand years ago, yeah. just straight half. Um, how much richer are we than those people? 20, 50 times richer? So you're right. Like, what, you know, the scale is a little off if we're 50 times richer and we only work half as much. But, well, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I uh, know, I was just going to say, but yeah, you, you do, there's that extra variable that, mm-hmm. that is compensating. Is that, again, the, 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 amount, uh, the, the amount of work in terms of time is not going down. Uh, and and the amount of output expected is going up, but then of course the amount of compensation is going up too, and that balances the that that would balance the equation and in a way that again Adam Smith or uh, any even classical economist would recognize and say yeah no that that squares yeah and, and what I what I see is that economics. The, the, the system of innovation in the system, both, both structurally and technically, uh, it's going to mean that we're always going to produce more. And as a society, we can choose to work less. But that's the problem is, as an individual, you really cannot choose to work less. Mm-hmm. It has to be societal. And I've, I know this because I've tried to work less. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to date right now, and uh, half of all the women I swipe right on uh, want to travel the world and I'm like well if I'm going to travel the world with these people I have to make some money right yep. I can't just like I make more money than I have ever made my life by so much and yet I feel almost the same amount of pressure mm-hmm. because of the social expectations that I that I deal with and some people choose to go live in a cabin in the woods I have friends who've done this um, and at times in my life I've been a math tutor and worked 20 hours a week and mm-hmm. I was you know, just, you know, it's like enough to get by. And I said, I don't really actually want to do more than this. Or specifically, I went off and got a master's degree. So I could, you know, my, my other 30 hours a week. But I have, to, you know, the society really has to change. You really, you know, you, my dad was never going to allow me to work less than 40 hour week. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just society would have to tell my dad that it's okay for his son to work less than 40 hours before he would, before that would be acceptable to him. And, and that's the, having nothing to do with my personal level of happiness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. Well, again, and, and to me, that that's an interesting barrier, which, man, I'm going to have to get a lot of uh, additional reading to do. Because at some point or other, that that's happened. Right, of course. And, and I mean, at least... We've gone from at, 45 to 40. At least with the 40-hour week, work week, we know that that was, that was regulation. That was the government stepping in and saying, yeah. no, you can't make And that was a response to a big social movement. And so, you know, it makes one wonder, though, prior to that, or and then, of course, in the future, just because, because I mean, I think we all kind of feel 40 hours is, is fairly reasonable uh, as far as the amount of work time versus the amount of leisure time versus the, you know, mm-hmm. obviously we need to sleep uh, mm-hmm. and things like that. So 40 hours is not unreasonable so it makes you wonder what would be that kind of crossover point where society goes no no 40 hours is too much like well i think you know the the economy will keep changing i I certainly think that 100 years from now people are going to be like people used to work a 40-hour week right 
I mean, I, I don't, but I don't think it's going to be significantly less. I think it could be. I mean, I think it's going to be 35 hours before the end of my life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be 30 hours before the end of my kids' lives. Mm-hmm. But there is a certain point which I believe that's going to stop. And, and I experienced this because I've had a lot of different jobs in my life. And there is a part, there is an aspect to a career, which is how many hours a week do you need to work at this to feel like you know how to do your job? Mm. You need to keep up with the innovations within your field. How much time does that take? If you're a lawyer, it's a heck of a lot. Yeah. If you're a scientist, it's a heck of a lot. I was a math tutor. It wasn't that much. Math. Right? Math. math I really was tutoring change. math that had you know been written down thousands of years ago. Mm. Um, so I've been in jobs where I knew that I could be master the job, doing the job 20 hours a week. I've been in jobs where the job I have right now, it moves very fast. I don't think I could work less than 40 hours and be, you know, there, there, there's some inner conflict where if I work less than 40 hours, I might feel that I'm not living up to my potential mm-hmm. in this career due to the amount that, you know, the, the fast pace of it, uh, healthcare moves very quickly. Um, it's interesting to know about, you know, what's going on, what are the laws like, and then I also, you know, I'm, we work with coded models, uh, so I'm just learning code all the time, mm-hmm. getting better at that. Um, so I think it's gonna depend on the job. Um, well then, interestingly, if, if, we, if we circle back to, to Star Trek, and it, at least, again, specifically Starfleet, mm-hmm. they're working 24 hours a day. They, uh, they're not working 24 come, hours a day. Come full, full, or it right. seemed to me they've come full circle. Like, obviously they sleep and they have recreation time. Yeah. I actually think they're probably working, it looks like they're working 10-hour days. Mm. Uh, six, well, but, day, six days a week. Maybe. But, you know, if you're on the Enterprise... Zipping around space, you're on call twenty four seven. Yeah, you're right? on call twenty four yeah. because who knows when yeah. the let's say fil- the Klingons fil- will attack. Y- yes. we'll do. Yeah, uh, you know when they're going to show up or when a crisis is. So, yeah, I mean, actual sitting at your workstation doing labor, you know, and I'm sure it, de- it changes depending on what part of the ship you're in. You know, the guys down in in the engineering. Uh, Mm-hmm. Where's Scotty? Scotty, Joy LaForge. Uh, I'm sure they have you know six or eight or twelve hour shifts that they work because somebody's got to be there watching mm-hmm. the the core. You know, up on the bridge, maybe it's different. Actually, quite similar probably, to to the modern Navy. It's gonna be it's gonna be relative to the status of of the person. Yeah, it, it is obvious that the people who are more knowledgeable, more skillful in that show, work more. Of course, it could just be that the main character's on screen all the time. You know, it's a show. (laughs) But it makes economic sense, right? Just what I was talking about, those people have decided to be masters of their field. Mm -hmm. That is a sacrifice of time that is unavoidable. Mm -hmm. You know, those people probably worked 60-hour work weeks, and they signed up to do that. They knew what they were getting into. They said, I'm going to strive to be one of the best, certainly going to strive to be the best on my starship, to do that, that's a responsibility of I'm gonna to have to spend more time than the other people, yeah, and that's and, okay. And it's uh, it's the trade-off, you know. Again, you you don't have to work that many hours if if that's not appealing to you. 
but your job is going to have significantly less status as compared to, say, the, the, the captain of the right, ship. Right, exactly. Um, you're very skillful. You get to order people around. You're, you're probably also, you know, sharing a, a bay with anywhere between six and, and I don't know how what the accommodations on a well, starship it, yeah, are like. It certainly depends on the... Uh, but you know the the, the 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 lower tier guys, the red shirts, I'm sure are if they're not doing hot racks where they three people just cycle in and out of a bed, then they're doing they're they're living right, it's more like a college dorm type of yeah. situation. It's Whereas it's, the captain gets his own mm-hmm. room, mm-hmm. is pretty spacious. It's it it meets his status, mm-hmm. and so even though there's there's not a paycheck involved, exactly. That's there the is reward. there is a, yeah, a compensation, and so. Uh, yeah, you know, getting into to, to that, uh, you know, even without a currency, there is still a social currency at play. And, and yeah, circling back to uh, currency in some form or another, even in a completely social form, is still going to exist. Right. But then you get around to, um, yeah, go going back to how much work they're they're actually putting in yeah the 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 at least within starfleet it seems like the 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 work is adjusted based on their status but also effectively yeah they're all on call 24 hours a day mm-hmm. in exchange for which all their needs are met so that's it's a pretty fair deal. Yeah. I mean it's tough with members of starfleet because they're obviously the expectations of them are much higher than the rest of society, almost every other part. It's akin to being, you know, they're they're like, you know, emergency. It's like being an emergency doctor. You know, high stress, on call all the time, very high skilled, high level responsibility. Even the lowest members of Starfleet. Mm. So that's the problem with the show is that you see that you don't really see. There's there's probably three billion people back on Earth who do almost nothing. <laughs> you know, or you know, or their lives are akin to those greatest World of Warcraft players you know you've ever heard of and then you really you know if you ask who they are well they live in their parents basement mm. why because they spend every moment of their lives playing World of Warcraft <laughs> they're incredibly good like I used to look up to these people I mean I still do you know being in their presence was amazing seeing how skilled they were was amazing knowing that this was their life and that they they measured themselves by what they had in World of Warcraft something that was just collections of electrons and that was okay with that was okay for them so in a, in a society where you don't have to work they're going to be these alternatives to work like you know i'm like it's like you know you might get a bunch of professional ball, volleyball players mm. where they're quote professional but it's only because that's what they do with their time mm. not that they get paid and m- people might, might not even watch them or it might just be like you know almost like a town has a local baseball team i don't know how much of this happens anymore but my town had a local baseball team and at least 50 people would show up to watch their games and buy hot dogs and those people made a subsistence living mm-hmm. you know and uh you probably see a lot more of that where people are just content to pursue i'm gonna i love baseball more than anything else i'm never gonna be the best at it but i love it i will spend my life doing it well, and, 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 and I will be supported. I mean, if you're, if you're at, at the level of subsistence, and, and, and again, like I say, for, for listeners out there who, who again, are, are, are hearing this concept and thinking it's, again, hippie nonsense, it, it, 
it sounds like it is, but it, it does have grounding in economics because you do have this, that, that there's that compensating factor. They're, they're at a subsistence wage playing, you know, quadruple A baseball, <laughs> you know, below even minor league baseball. But they can cover their basic needs. They can cover food, shelter, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And, and the compensation is then they're doing the one thing they really like. And there's probably at least a kind of status uh, or elevated status that they have in that small town. Right, right. They're, they're uh, I mean, they are. They're, if, if that is their only job, then they are a professional ball player. Right. And certainly um, they'd have a physique that might yep. attract the opposite sex or whoever you're trying to attract. And so you, you do get that compensation uh, in, in things other than currency. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're not getting paid more because, again, it's a small, uh, small league, small stadium, about 50, 50 fans showing up at, with any regularity. Again, it's not – they're not playing at Comiskey. They're, they're not playing at Wrigley. They, they are, you know, they're small-town baseball. But within the sphere of that small town, they're, they're a big deal. Right. And, and to the other people in that small town, those people are contributing to that town's mm-hmm. social life. No, oh, they're, you know? they're entertaining them. In, they're, in a society where nobody has to really contribute to society in the way that we consider a contributing member society, you know, the contribution would just be being a nice person mm-hmm. and providing some level, some level of value, right? And, and in this case, it's just you can come watch my baseball games. I will try really hard when I'm playing baseball. I'll dive for the ball. It'll be cool. Mm-hmm. And well, and again, we can see you take that out to to the macro level across all society. That clearly has a value because when you get to the professional level, and again, in 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 our modern world which is still using currency look how much we compensate baseball players for and again i'm not i wouldn't argue that they have an easy job you're you're talking about uh a fairly heavy you know physical strain on even in baseball not so much when you compare it to something like football yeah real professional baseball players compared to what what, job compared to what you or i do uh, right and then again, the skill level required to do the job, hitting a baseball being the hardest thing to do in, in sports. Um, and then, of course, the, you know, the uh, trust put on you to do your job well. You, you mm-hmm. can't... You, right. And your commitment that you will be there. You got to hustle when that ball's coming down in, in left field. I was at the game where Milton Bradley stopped doing that and they fired him. So, yeah, you, you have to... You know, you have to at least make the the greatest effort to to catch that fly ball because uh, if not, you're not going to be a professional ball player for very long. So you know, the the salary compensates them for that, which would then lead you to you could then reduce that back down to the micro uh, to the, or really to the smaller level and say that that thing is still playing out even if the salary isn't the compensating factor. Uh, clearly. We as a society enjoy the the you know either the uh, game itself or or you can you could even say the distraction or the entertainment however you want to frame it of professional sports at any level. Yeah, I, when I lived in uh, more remote places than here in Chicago, 
Uh, I spent a good amount of time at, again, AAA uh, baseball mm-hmm. stadiums because mm-hmm. you didn't really have anything else mm-hmm. without having to drive two hours. So uh, for nine bucks, you get uh, great seats right behind home plate and see a bunch of people who aren't ever going to be, uh, you know, at the, the absolute pro level play baseball. And that's fun. And again, yeah, that, that has a currency all of its own. So, uh, yeah, uh, bouncing back to, again, the, the, the general economy of Star Trek. Uh, one of the other, you know, questions that crops up, you know, when, it, when I think about this, the system as they would have it, is how integral do you think the, the very existence of Starfleet and its, its mandate are to making that whole economy function? It's basically a project, a global project. We it is to, a global project, that's right. Like the Apollo program. Yeah, we need to shift resources to building starships and pushing, you know, uh, manning them and pushing them out across the, the galaxy to, I mean, you know, either enforce enforce intergalactic law or explore, or, you know, whatever iteration you're dealing with. Uh, do you think without that, that global project to, to drive resources and, and, and to drive meaning, do you think an economy like Star Trek's could exist? Uh, well, I actually think Starfleet is a product of the economy in, in, in that show. Mm. Uh, and the reason is is that once you have an economy where you don't need to work to earn a living, basically. Mm. The living is earned. What you do with your time now could be anything. You get a society where people value things very highly that Starfleet provides. You know, new and interesting things. Discoveries, innovation is prized so highly in that society. You know, e- even the United States, where innovation is prized highly, you know, it's like it's like double, triple that. You know, innovation, art, culture, uh, just new things. You know, I, I I get up every single time NASA posts something about it. You know, Pluto. I'm always just like, oh, I'm going to read that. Mm. I value this, right? Um, and and if I had to work hard. I probably wouldn't value that. Mm. I'd probably like, I would rather just have a good cheeseburger because I'm tired and cheeseburgers make me happy because I work hard, mm. right? So, you know, Starfleet discovering all these other cultures, you've got all those cultures are, you know, all of their innovations, they, they, Starfleet constantly floods the Federation with new and interesting things. Uh, that for a highly educated populace, heck, a populace with hardly anything else to do besides educate themselves, mm-hmm. that's going to be the most valuable thing they could possibly go after. And what else is going to have value besides maybe social status? You know, you, you've probably got romance is important in a society. Romance, other people, comedy, but then you've got, you know, art and culture and discoveries. Interesting things change you know your input that you can take put right into your brain and be like wow that was really cool i never thought of that before mm-hmm. well again I, I think that that works you know when you're when you're looking at i guess anthropology mm-hmm. uh, which i'm not an expert in but uh i, I well, i'm pretty good at anthropology which <laughs> is, uh, is 
to me that 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 idea would that idea squares with the the nature of humanity because we've always kind of done that it's mm-hmm. it started as leaving the cave and right. it, it went to crossing rivers crossing you know large lakes you know right we maybe are the most curious species. eventually expanded into crossing oceans and then going under the ocean and then taking to the air and space is space is what's next it's just the next in the long line of progression of discovery and so this this idea that you could drive a society and by extension an economy through exploration it at least makes sense that hum, the human human nature would accept that and i think there's a there's a huge relationship between the amount of wealth a society has and the amount it spends on exploration discovery and innovation mm. Well, I mean, once you're above that subsistence level, once you have enough food to eat and you don't really have to worry about it not being there, then you can start, you know, looking across the sea and going, I wonder what's over there. And, you know, I'm, right. I'm, getting, I'm getting tired of, uh, you know, the, the basic wheat grain we eat over here. I wonder what they got over there. Speaking of anthropology, based on what I know about how humans lived before we formed the societies that we identify today. You know, a 40-hour work week was not a thing. Mm. Our days consisted of exploring, finding, innovating, and eating the product of those actions. And it's interesting to me that I find Star Trek closer to that Mm. than modern society as it's designed now. You know, all the things that those people are doing, all the things that drive that society in the raw form are the things that, you know, drove the hunter-gatherers where there weren't that many humans in a lot of land. You just say, well, I'm going to find out what's on the other side of that mountain. Maybe it's a, a new type of berry that I've never had before that grows abundantly. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, a big, that's a great discovery. I'll share it with my friends. I'll gain social status. See, now, that, now that's, the, that's the socialist caveman. The capitalist caveman is, I'll corner the market on these berries. But yeah, no. Well, yeah, but I in, 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 in small groups of people, you don't see much capitalism. You see yeah. a lot of more um, of, of cashing and social status. Mm-hmm. And, and you actually see the rigid, there's, there's a rigidness to those societies where they go out of their way to make sure people are rewarded status for things like that. Otherwise, their system breaks down. Yeah. Well, and again, they, in exchange for that status, everybody gets new berries and you know new whatever whatever is on the other side of that hill and and that's the reward uh to compensate for the risks of going to the other side of the hill because i don't know maybe you get eaten when when that happens um but but interestingly i i guess i wonder if you uh, the, the way you're talking about it you seem to feel that Starfleet is the effect of a society at maximum efficiency rather than the cause. Starfleet in the next generation. Yeah. And so my, I, I guess I wonder if we flip that, could you, and it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing, could you induce a society that is, is pushing up towards the, the upward limit of efficiency by creating a, a global project like like Starfleet, like in 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 our modern terms, if uh, 
coalition of nations, if the UN, you know, pick whatever dynamic you want, everyone decides, okay, we're going to pool resources, we're going to start a global space program, we're going to start colonizing and, and pushing out the, the limits of our solar system. Uh, would that would you need the unlimited or the the maximum efficiency first in order to make that even possible or could you induce the conditions that would bring us to maximum efficiency by starting that project that's a very complicated question so don't don't feel you have to just answer that off the bat so a lot of the obviously a lot of the when you say maximum efficiency you really mean you know the amount of output that society can produce per laborer Mm -hmm. Uh, you know a lot of that's technological innovation Uh, certainly we've seen the Apollo program drive technological Mm -hmm. innovation Um, as an economist I would love to see you know societies or or governments you know fund more technological innovation Mm -hmm. it seems to me that Socially, it's much more acceptable to have a goal, like the Apollo program, and then the Apollo program, the byproduct of that is te- technological innovation. Certainly, um, the interesting thing is China, because of its unique political structure, uh, they're one of the first nations in the world to just say, "Oh, we're just gonna t- we're gonna pour everything into you know we have goals for technological innovation. We're just gonna make it happen. All 1.3 billion of us. Mm. It's just happening now." Nobody gets to nobody gets to say anything different. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean, that that is that dynamic can serve as a strength. Uh, obviously, I think there's weaknesses to that too. Right. I, I think it. I mean, certainly in China, there are there's a negative impact to individual innovation. Mm-hmm. Well, and and but you know when we flip that and look at the the purely uh, profit motivated innovation is is you will you like you get good results because with the profit motivation with the ability to benefit from your innovate from your innovation it incentivizes people to innovate because they want they want to get paid uh the the drawback uh that can happen is certain areas of innovation don't get explored because there isn't an obvious profit to be made from Mm -hmm. that and and i think the the comparison I've always, or the analogy I've always really liked is uh, if medical science were, were left uh, entirely to, again, uh, oversight and profit motivation, you would have the world's most efficient iron lung, but you would not have a cure for polio because right. yeah. that, that comes from this kind of undirected research that, that you don't know if you're going to generate something significant from it. Very risky, yeah. And so the the profit motivation is good, but it can kind of bite you in some areas. And uh, yeah. you, there needs to be, you need to strike a balance between those. Right, two. and that's why I, I would, you know, that's why I think that currency never goes away. I don't think capitalism ever goes mm. away. I mm. think that the way we harness capitalism could change, mm. right? But it's this, it's like, it's like lightning is incredibly powerful if you can get it to do what you want, <laughs> you can do a lot of things, right? Right. We realized that was electricity. We started generating our own electricity. It's amazing. It can kill you. Yep. Pretty easily. <laughs> right. So we, we, we have guidelines on how we use it. But capitalism is an incredibly powerful engine. Uh, but it can't do everything. Yeah. 
Uh, and so like, you know, that's kind of where the, the future comes in, where they still have a quasi-capitalist system in, in Star Trek, you know? Um, it's just, you know, when you change, when you change the, uh, the idea of profit, mm-hmm. like what I, was, what I was saying about that person is like, I'm gonna invent an even better way to grow uh, grapes. Uh, you know, he's just being gonna be rewarded with the glory, he's gonna be on the cover of some magazine, mm-hmm. right? And that's going to be his claim to fame. But he's not going to profit off of it in the way we understand profit now. And I guess the, the underlying idea with kind of the, a lot of this futurist stuff is that the economy, particularly the way the world moves faster and faster and faster, you just you don't know what it's going to look like 100 years from now. Mm. And in the last 100 years in the United States, there's actually been a shift from rewarding people socially to rewarding them with currency. Mm. And you particularly see this if you, you know, you go to smaller and smaller communities. There's a lot that happens in small communities that's not rewarded in current with currency. Uh, and that can happen because of the dynamics of a small community. Mm. The United States has, you know, changed from a lot of small communities to a lot bigger communities. A lot's more a lot more is driven by income. Uh, like I said, I, I'm dating and to a degree somebody's gonna measure my value in the dating pool based on how much I make. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, I think the United States has gone a little far with that. I think we've done it out of necessity and I think it's been totally practical given how fast the world changes, how, you know, the fact that I was born in Vermont and I live in Chicago and, you know, it's like, when when you move in places, you have to reset your your social capital and all kinds of things like that. So social capital is not very mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, actual capital is well. Uh, financial capital is pretty mobile. These I days. mean, you you just need that T-shirt that says "Back in Vermont." That was a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. you can get that for like fifty right, bucks. Right, right, of course. Um, but I think I do think it's a society. There's going to we're going to see movement away from the currency, the wealth as valuation of a person mm-hmm. system. We're going to still have it. You know, there's still going to be part of our economy, in, in, a, in a necessary and important part of our economy, uh, no matter what, as long as there is some level of trade mm-hmm. in goods and services. No, again, uh, like we had said, it's just too convenient. Right, uh, it really is. But what I think the change, what the the change that you see in Star Trek, is right the bottom line. That idea is you you just don't measure yourself by the currency you can produce. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I think that that does make sense because if if you if you take the the, the path you had talked about, where we keep increasing the the importance of compensation through currency rather than social compensations or or other compensations, you're going to hit the, the the problem with anything is if you veer veer too hard in one direction, you're going to hit a point where it begins to strain the whole system, and and you may you know, I guess we're pretty terrible futurists because I can't even think of a of a, a way that this would would start to readjust itself. But you kind of rely on you know. Because we, because the the economy and really our whole social system does operate at an equilibrium, that eventually that'll get pulled back to to a more stable. Right, you can place. use historical information, but I, I can see some ways where we pull back on this. I, you know, I read a lot about 
people being angry about executive compensation. Mm. It's, it's, it's insanely high. And when I read about these people or I, re, or I look at these people, I'm like, well, these people are being paid to work so hard that that's all they have in their life. Mm-hmm. Like, so you have to ask yourself, how much money would I have to make to sacrifice literally everything else in my life? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, you know, some millions of dollars. It's, it's a lot, but right? th- there is a number. And so the economy has shifted. When the economy shifts to rewarding people just with money, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of money to sell somebody's, buy somebody's soul. I mean, these guys have sold their soul for a period of time mm-hmm. in their lives. Well, and again, like like you said, I mean, you're you're, if you are a top tier executive at a Fortune 500 or above company, like you, it's a 24 hour day job, uh, in in an on call. Like 24 hour on call, yeah. And probably uh, a 20 hour a day of actual work. I mean, your even your social functions are an extension of your work because, as that top top tier executive, everything you're doing is representing your company. And again, it's not to, you know, say you know, oh, woe is the the poor multimillionaire corporate executive, but the the, the compensation doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, again, right. the the basic market economics says that. The results we're seeing, short of a of a major breakdown of a market, are correct. We just haven't figured out what the equation is to explain. Exactly. That. Yeah. What what is the equation? And so you know what what you're dealing with with corporate executives there is is an equation where yeah a lot of the you know basically eliminate leisure and personal time. Uh, again, it may not seem that way, but. You know, even attending a social event is not a social event to a lot of these people. It's a work opportunity. Right. It's it, it's a networking opportunity. It's you gotta you, you can't you can't get too drunk at the uh, free bar because mm-hmm. that's going to affect the stock price of your company if you make a fool mm-hmm. of yourself. And so there's they need to be compensated for that. Again, whether or not that high level of monetary compensation is the healthiest way of, of getting the results we want, I think that's entirely debatable. Right. It's the, we're not debating about the outcome of the equation, right? You identify it. We're, we're talking about, is there something wrong with the equation? And I, I was arguing there is. Yeah. I was arguing that we've chosen to compensate those people almost entirely with money. And it used to be the case that we compensated those people with a bunch of things. Yeah. It used to be the case that you know, they had a certain level of respect or clout in wherever, you know, circles they were in. Um, and, and you see some people, uh, particularly, I don't know, like, like a person like Elon Musk, I believe is being rewarded with the kind of clout and respect and fame that used to be given to, you know, people in, I would say, much a much more local sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and he spends all of his money doing things that are, you know, not necessarily beneficial to him. You know, mm-hmm. he, you can see that he enjoys his life in a way that some people who are only being rewarded with, with money, do, you know, do not. It's like, it's like work and work and work and work and work. Musk is like, actually, it's a pretty good time. Uh, well, I get to be on the cover of things. I, I think people he, bow down to me. He, he's hit a point. At least in his personal finances, where, uh, just like from Forrest Gump, he doesn't have to worry about money anymore. 
anybody. Like he, he's never going to go broke. Uh, he will always be able to live comfortably. So you, you sock. But that, everybody who makes millions of dollars oh, a year is there. You, you sock that money away, and then yeah, I think what he's figured out is that it's more fun to be uh, the you know wacky uh, innovator, you know, multimillionaire, billionaire. Than it is to be, or it, it, it's actually. Let me rephrase it. It's more fun to be a, uh, you know, wacky uh, genius millionaire than it is to be a serious billionaire. Right, right. A serious, hardworking executive billionaire. Yeah, it, and and again, he he pours a lot of. Uh, Elon Musk is the example for all things in economics these days, but. Uh, you know, he, he, he pours his money into high-risk ventures. Some of them pay off. Some of them don't. Uh, he does things, I think, sometimes, again, just for that social status. The whole flamethrower thing is just kind of awesome. Yeah. And, and I doubt he, he made all that much money off those flamethrowers, but he got a lot of press for it. And, and the fact that if you ask the average person on the street for, you know, a, a modern... Uh, industrialist, you know, mm-hmm. go go back uh, far enough. People might say, you know, you know Carnegie or you know any any of the robber barons. If you ask people today, I would I would guess more than half of them that could name somebody off the top of their head, name Elon Musk, mm-hmm. uh, and the the other one is Richard Branson, mm-hmm. right? And the those rebel, are the rebel billionaire guy. Th- those are the two crazy ones. And, and again, I say crazy. They're not. They're brilliant. Right. You know, again. Uh, right. And it's, in fact, I like that you use the word crazy because all you're saying is they're bucking social norms. Yeah. Social norms that determine that these guys must be less happy. Yeah. And make more money. And, and yet they. And instead they've chosen to be happier and make less money, which is the whole point of this conversation. We keep gaining wealth. Society has to start saying, let's let's pursue a little bit more what makes us happy and a little bit less mm-hmm. what makes us a sandwich. And and again, it's it you know it gets into that thing where I, I think that idea oftentimes gets rejected out of hand because oh you know a a society that pursues happiness again it's it's seen as uh, new age nonsense, but it's not because. And again, economics backs this up. We, we, we can calculate happiness. And if you really sit down and think about it, isn't most of the effort you put into your day-to-day life pursuing your own happiness? Isn't that yeah. really the... I mean, life, liberty, the, the, pursuit the, of happiness. Isn't that really the currency you're, we're actually dealing with? Yeah, or something ha- close to that. Yeah. Happiness, contentment, Comfort, lack of stress. Whatever you yes. want to call it. Yeah. Good feelings. And so, you know, yes, you can uh, be compensated more in, in, again, financial currency. But it's going to be at the expense of personal happiness. And if if you concede that personal happiness is the real, you know, again, whatever term you want to use, but that is the real end goal. Uh, Just like we were talking about with efficiency isn't a world where we don't have to do manual labor the end goal if if maximizing our our personal happiness is the end goal then 
I think that realigns that would realign our thinking about again how different things are compensated, and and yeah, you do you have to pay these people who basically have to abandon or or at least delay personal happiness. You have to compensate them some way because yeah. they're giving up. And points. it's not just that they're delaying it now; it's mm-hmm. that they've spent their whole life working up to this. You know, sacrificing the whole time yeah. to get there. And so, they, not that they're not. I mean, they're 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 usually also lucky individuals, and in they were lucky to get the skill sets and mm. the brain power that they have. But they've also had to sacrifice quite a bit. Well, and again, it's it you know yeah you. Don't, and if they didn't, we would pay them less. Like I know they did because of how much we pay them because yeah. we're economists, and that's the, the type the, of thing we do. The 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 right side of the equal sign is not in debate. Right, it's in debate is the left side <laughs> yeah. of the equal sign. Uh, again. Are, are they being compensated correctly in a market economy? Yeah. You know how I know that? Because that's what they're being compensated. Uh, we just have to figure out why why we're at that number. And again, I think you're right. Is, is you, you have to compensate for the lack of happiness. And, and guys like Branson and Musk have kind of figured out the, the workaround is that, listen, I can be less wealthy than a lot of other people. Uh, I'm still more wealthy than most of the world, right. but I can be less wealthy than most of my peers, but I can be really happy. Like, they, because again, you lo- you see interviews with Branson or Musk, they seem really happy with what they're doing. Uh, Bill Gates, now that he, you know, has kind mm-hmm. of extracted himself from he's Microsoft. Taking, he's taking the stress off his shoulders. And, yeah. and now all he really has to do is spend his money through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And- like cure, what's that, the, the uh, tube worm or whatever yeah. it's called. And, you know, he, he seems, he, he's probably got less money in his bank account today than he would have yeah. if he had but, stuck but with who, it. who needs all that money? But, yeah, like, he's got all the money in the world already. He has all the monies. Yeah. Uh, you know, at that point, I think he made the sensible choice of going, yeah, no, I'm just going to kind of. I'm, yeah, uh, I'm gonna speak at conferences, and I'm gonna direct my money towards funding NPR, and uh, you know, yeah, curing weird, you know, weird diseases in far corners of the world, and that's a pretty good life. And getting back to a futurist view, I I believe that part of you, you know when we judge people and value people in in in, in today's society. Part of the future will actually be, is this person happy? Mm. I will value them more highly because they're happy. Because if they're happy, that means that they have, you know, they've made the effort to do the things that make them happy. Well, that's interesting because that's a, that, that would be a, a shift in dynamic where yeah. I think today we are happier when society values us more. Exactly. And, and that would be that'd be a, a complete 180 where mm-hmm. society values us because we're happy and the, again it'd be a I think that's a, either a long slow or a very rough transition to society I don't think, flipping that. I don't think it could be too, I mean I, I think it'd be slow but I don't think it'd be rough and mm-hmm. I'll tell you why because there are people out there who we look at a person we say well that person's really happy I respect them because mm. they've obviously done things in their life. They figured they, stuff out. They got life that figured I'm, out. Like maybe they have some advice for me. Mm. And then once you get to that point of, of, of personal happiness is associated with wisdom, there, there's value there. That, that person's a valuable person because unless they just shut themselves out, 
a happy person has a positive effect on the people around you. Mm. Well, and and I think because yeah, you're right. We do sort of have that, but I I, I think there's right, just a little bit. There's there's left and right limits on that because you know obviously if if you you know we we would still look at and uh, you know when when you observe the the economics happiness index, it actually shows people in third world countries tend to tend to be happier than mm-hmm. in industrialized countries. Mm-hmm. Um, Although I would argue with. People in high economic growth rate countries, yeah. right? It's like because we as economists can identify certain factors. Yeah, uh, but you know, you uh, we, in the industrialized world, we would still look at that and go, "Well, they can't possibly be happy. Like they don't have they don't have YouTube. How they can are they be happy? happy? They're happy because every day they can be like, I think today or tomorrow will be better than today.' Well, but I I think there is still like let's like say just. In the minds of society, mm-hmm. we feel like we still feel have this weird, uh, almost quasi-colonialist idea that well, yes, you might you might think you're happy, but until you have internet and uh, you know smartphones and uh, you know cineplexes, you're not really happy. Yeah. You, you just don't know anything. But I other. think we've started to identify that as a load of bull. Yeah. I mean, well, certainly younger generations. Well, and just the fact that, it, it, no, happiness is relative. Right. Yes, of course. You, you don't have that. And maybe you would be happier still if you had access to, you know, the Internet. All evidence to the contrary, because they've done studies on this. Yes. Uh, but, you know, maybe you would be happier. But what does it matter? You're, you're happy. You're plenty happy without it. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't take away anything. There, there isn't a... A minimum uh, level of exposure to the world or anything that you need in order for people to consider you happy but I think do think we do we can tend to think that way sometimes um, which again would have to be something to, to be gotten over as a society for, mm-hmm. for an, a, an economy but to that's then, tied into that wealth really kind of a, a weirdly unhealthy wealth relationship with, with status a, a kind of wealth fetish yeah uh, which, uh, you know, again, I, I just have to feel that be, because we, we at least in the U.S., you know, it, it, the industrialized world are veering so hard that way that there will be a, a compensation back to equilibrium. I don't know what that would be, but I have to think it's going to happen. Again, as economists, everything gravitates towards equilibrium. It just does. Mm-hmm. It's what's really cool about it uh, so yeah I, I and, and again kind of going back to part of me wonders if, if you could if, if we have to just kind of sit here and wait for that to happen naturally knowing that it will or if you could theoretically induce that so again if we if, if we decide and say hey we are going to dedicate the, the efforts of the global population or even at a national level because we, we've done it before at a national level. We're going to dedicate the bulk of our efforts, the bulk of our money towards this this one goal. You know, we're, we, Before it was, we're going to go to the moon. Now it could be anything. I actually think the next one's probably defeating death. Mm-hmm. Or, or death from old age. Mm-hmm. Probably aging. Not. But, but again, that would be that kind of driving project mm-hmm. that might reconfigure... Uh, the the weight 
society gives to different aspects of, of the economy and saying, well, yeah, because it's it's part of this kind of national or global initiative, the, the researchers working on defeating death, say, uh, or again, death from old age. Um, they're not being paid as much because we're, we're not working entirely within a profit motivation system. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, again, the, the very, our government or the various governments, however you configure it, funneling money. But these guys are trying to defeat death by old age. Right. That's so pretty the glory amazing. They're, they're rock is stars. extreme, right? Yeah. If, if you could do that, if you succeeded. I mean, you'd be, you know, how much higher of a status could you possibly get than, than the person who stopped Oh yeah, helps stop people from dying of all that means. And so you know, like, like I say, in in that scenario, you you could theoretically induce the the trend back towards equilibrium. You, you could create it. I um, I am doubtful that that's that that would happen. Mm. Um, although, you know, it's interesting watching China because we do have a great example of society that just works differently. So it's interesting to watch what China does with its own quasi-hegemony in the next century. Mm. Um, or if the world just becomes a non, you know, nobody has real hegemony. That would, that would also be a real possibility. Um, I think that, I, I do just think that we have, I think we've already passed the tipping point. Mm. I think we've already started this process and so I don't, uh, in addition to not feeling like it could ever happen the way you described, yeah. <laughs> I also feel that not only is it started to happen, but uh, I don't need it to happen any faster than it is mm. necessarily. Although I personally push it all the time. Mm. You know, I talk about this with people a lot where I say like, oh, great, you've done all these things. Are you happy? Is it, is it making you happy or do walks in the park make you happy? Mm. And how much do those cost? Right. Oh, that's like a Hallmark card, man. <laughs> no, but you know, I mean, the walks in the park, though, they do cost money. Uh, because, like, if you want to live near Lincoln Park, it costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. To get there, right? So they're, they're real factors there. But importantly... Plus uh, there's an opportunity cost. Because while walking in the park, I'm missing Westworld, and that show's amazing. Of course, so. of course. But you don't have to... You don't have to miss TV anymore. <laughs> yeah, we you, live in a world where you can watch TV, we, we, what you want, whatever you want. We finally perfected what are, what are you, that. You're crazy? We live in the future. Um, <laughs> Not I if I don't we, want it to I think we've already... We're, there, there are large parts of society that are realizing that wealth does not equal happiness. Mm. That the way we use wealth you know, matters to our happiness, uh, certainly. Um, there's, it's, like, it's like if you're a guy with a boat... You might be happy, but if you're a guy with a bunch of friends who you can put on that boat, you're a lot happier. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and even uh, I, you know, going to back to you know, uh, executive compensation and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a, a high level executive, you probably own a boat because you have the money for it. You don't have time to go on that boat. But how much time yeah. are you actually spending on that boat? Yeah. Uh, so having the boat isn't the trick. Uh, it's having the boat and having the time to actually enjoy the boat because uh, uh, otherwise it, it's just a decoration right uh, it's just, just a, it might as well be a little pin on your shirt yeah, it says I, right? have I have a boat yeah uh, and that thing and only costs like 15 right. bucks but that's literally what it is in fact if I was really rich I would just buy 
pictures of somebody else's boat and hang it all over the place and just pretend I own that boat. Yeah. I mean, you and never have time would, to spend there. Right, would be like, oh, sorry, no, no, you know. And my, and my wife's got the boat. And so, yeah, yeah. no, it, it, it I, th- I think ideas like that too often get dismissed. Uh, and, you know, we've hit on this a couple times already where, you know, they, they get dismissed as not being serious, as again, being, being this kind of new age, th- new age thinking that is just sort of ridiculous. And the grownups understand that capitalism is all about making money. But again, capitalism is, as we've covered on this show, is really just industry being held by private hands rather than state hands. Like it, it, it has nothing mm-hmm. to do with that. Market economies are not all about money. It's it's about compensation, and compensation can take any number of forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, mm-hmm. like I say, we had just covered uh, the chapter in Wealth of Nations where Adam Smith rattles off all the various forms of of you know positive and negative compensation that can be involved in wages and profits, and how it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all serves to counterbalance everything to to itself. And so, yeah, you know, you can make less money, but you probably have, you you may be making less money, but you probably have a less stressful job with less requirements on you. You probably, it's probably a much more enjoyable job, a less physically strenuous job. If you value those things more than money and and you're already above the ability to to Well, I'm trying to say, you know, your your marginal values for each, right, meet. Uh, not more or less then again what does it really matter yeah and and I can speak that I have a job that I know I get paid less than other people uh, of the same skill set I don't I I, I can wear a t-shirt to work (laughs) Uh, I have to go into the office two days a week Mm. I work from home three days a week Uh, I work an average of 40 hours a week I asked my boss if I could work from home for two weeks with my family in Vermont. He was mm-hmm. like, I'm surprised you even bothered to ask. Of course you can. That was around Christmas. He's like, we're so slow on Christmas. There's no reason for you to come in the office. Just go skiing every day. <laughs> and also, he said, don't bother to take any actual time off unless you don't ever sign into work. <laughs> so, I mean, but I, but I, but you know, and he says, yes, but he says, you have all these benefits the company is awarding you non-financial and you also make less mm-hmm. and that's the trade-off i knew i wanted yeah and and like i say it, i i think there i'm sure there are people out there who who would hear you say that and go this man's this man's ridiculous who would take less money i'll take the extra extra work and extra time at the office i want that more, i want more money and, and hey, that is their marginal utility. Right, right. Those jobs for those people should always exist. We yep. should have both options. And and but again, I think a lot of people out there probably hear that and go, yeah, you know, I'd be willing to if it if it meant five more hours a week at home with my kids. Yeah, exactly. I take you know slightly less money. Like I'll take that. And for in. me, it was two weeks with my niece, yep. who I hardly get to see because she's a thousand miles away. And and yeah, I think you know modern society does we, we we tend to evaluate it in a single variable which is financial compensation and that's it's not really it's not good economics because uh, it's not right. explaining the whole economists equation. would never use just just currency if they if they were really talking brass tax and so uh so yeah so 
any other aspects of, of the again I know the, the Star Trek economy is it's second fanci- it's, it's fanciful well it's secondary in the story to yeah, the, the exploration and the, the fighting aliens and all the cool stuff like that uh, but yeah any other aspects of it that we haven't covered yet I don't think so okay and then uh, yeah and, and like I say it is, it Not is that I mean there are some great articles online on the Star Trek economy that mm. go into details about trade and foreign trade that is completely unnecessary to bring up here okay <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no. So, like you were saying, yes, it's fanciful. It's it's born out of the minds of television writers. Uh, but it's got some really important aspects. I think we've covered well. Well, and, well, and again, like I say, as as fanciful as it is, it's not um, entirely outside the realm of of what we understand as economics. There, there, oh, yeah. there, there are there are pieces and, and fragments and, and seeds of of. You know things that would, in fact, be the logical extension of, of kind of how our society is progressing and how our economy is progressing. So while, yeah, probably we're probably never going to be precisely, you know, 100, 200, 300 years from now, we wouldn't land precisely at, you know, the the life in within the Federation and and with Starfleet and all that stuff, but. I think we, I, I personally, I think we'd probably land closer to it than people might think. Uh, oh yeah, because uh, you know, again, a lot of this stuff that, that the writers used seemed to be again based on those logical endpoints of you know, if we're going in this direction, you know, if if, if you're heading east, you're eventually going to hit the ocean, right? We don't know when, we don't know where, but you're what eventually going to yeah. get there. That is the end point. So, you know, if, if your society is based around increasing efficiency, eventually you're going to get to a point where a whole bunch of types of jobs are gone. And you need to figure out... Uh, I mean, we, and, and, and somebody in 1900 looking at us would say the same. Yeah. Oh my God! Somebody got so many jobs are gone. <laughs> Where are all the carriage drivers? <laughs> but even more than that, you know, I I personally know, you know, a few farmers. Yeah. And that's not even, you know, some people are like, oh, I've never actually met somebody who mm. has that job. Whereas, you know, for five thousand years, it was the main, that, that was the what, main career. Every, every, Almost but, everyone had it. Everybody on the the uh, dating sites back then said farmer. Uh, I mean, right, not just the dating site that happens to be farmers only. Yeah, uh, it's a real thing. And and so yeah, no, you, the, if that is the the logical endpoint, then yeah, we need to, I guess, not be. It would behoove us to not be surprised as, again, we, we keep watching these these uh, manual labor jobs kind of fall away. Again, they're not they're not being stolen. Uh, they're not being rerouted. They well, they are, but they're they're being given away to robots who can do it more efficiently uh, for much less cost, thus lowering the price of the goods being made. And unfortunately, we just find ourselves in this transition period where it's really awkward for, you know, people in the labor market because it's entirely possible that three or four times throughout, like again, the the, the kids growing up today, the the, the millennials, it's, it's not outside the realm of possibility that at three or four different times in their lives, their job will become obsolete. 
and they'll have to shift. And we might hit a point later, generations down the line, where that kind of stops, and, and we hit a, a, a more stable uh, dynamic. But, yeah, that's probably going to keep happening, and so we should probably get used to it. It's interesting. My, my job is supposedly under threat by, like, the, the next kind of um, huge economic change is, you know, it used to be labor jobs that were, that were being replaced mm-hmm. by robots, and now it's going to be intellectual jobs that are replaced by robots. Uh, I'm not scared at all. Like I said, um, my job is almost entirely to build and innovate. Mm. Um, so building and innovating is not a job that's going to go away yeah, it, well, from a very broad perspective. And it's a transferable skill. Right, right. It's a transferable skill. But in addition to that, like I was saying, uh, it seems that uh, you know the client's expectations just get higher. Mm. The more output we can do per person, like the more quasi artificial intelligence we use which basically is us coding massive you know if, if then statements yeah. <laughs> um, you know the more we do that you know the more our clients want eventually we're you know our first AI is going to be able to process our easiest analysis mm. where somebody's just like hey our contract is different pricing can you tell us how that's going to affect our bottom line right now somebody actually has to pull in information and get it all set up make sure it looks good and put it all through uh, you know, six years from now, that's probably going to be our little little thing that just handles that. Mm-hmm. But that's the easiest of our stuff. And in and, and my, you know, my job in this economy, if, if I want to maintain, you know, my status, it's about innovation mm-hmm. and, being, and, and being flexible and changing. And the problem with you know, large parts of the U.S. economy, uh, you know, certain areas did not feel like they needed to change or innovate. Or, you know, it's like people are like, this is what I do. Yep. And it's like, well, that, if, 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 you're, if you're really stuck to one thing, your job will disappear. Mm. But if what you do is a kind of basket of concepts, which is what, you know, kind of the new age economy demands of people, and honestly... People are happier when they're using more parts of their brain. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I think, yeah, what, what you're dealing with with some people is is the, uh, I, I think for some, they, they've decided that they're, they're in a race. Uh, they're in a race to retirement. And so for people entering those jobs that are kind of being, being completely replaced by automation, if if they've been in the job for maybe two or three years, I don't think it's as right. That's cr- not the problem. This as is crushing a of a blow. Thirty years. Right? It's it's the guy who's been doing it for thirty years. He's got two years to retirement, and now you know a, bu- a bunch of economists are coming around going, "Well, you shouldn't be surprised. Robots are taking over everything." And he's like, "Man, I just need two years. I just yeah. need to." Get I mean, I would argue they shouldn't be surprised. I still feel bad. Yeah, because. The speed of innovation, you know, humans can only keep up to a degree. And like I said, like, I feel like I can keep up for the next 10 years. 10 years after that, maybe I can't. Mm-hmm. Because I really don't know. Like, if AI starts building AI, there's no way I'm keeping up, right? As long as humans are building it, I can do that. Well, again, the, the, this is why I have started saying thank you when I have Alexa do something right. for me. Yeah, you. I've decided to be polite. I want to be on the, the good side of AI. So, 
But there are people left behind by the economy where we, we don't, you know, the, the education system relies on being able to teach people things in high school that they're going to use for the rest of their lives. Mm. In the modern economy, these people aren't using those for the rest of their lives. Why? Because 20 years from now, <laughs> it's completely it's completely different. Yep. You know, like I was talking to my parents about genetics, uh, and then I was talking about physics with atomic orbitals, and they're like, we have no idea what you're saying. That stuff did not exist in school. <laughs> And I'm like, well, you know, genetics is now a necessary part of being in a lot of uh, jobs, particularly because there's so much medical, mm. so many medical jobs. Anybody who didn't have that in high school would first have to go up, go back and find out what genetics are. Yeah. I mean, like, the economy moves so fast that it is going to be hard on people. And, and, uh, and again, with, I think, at least within our lifetime the next probably the next few generations no end in sight as far as right there's no it, it, be, it only gets faster be, yeah because the the increase in in uh technology is is in, is uh rapidly uh speeding up and so the the issues that come with that as far as again things becoming outmoded before you've had an opportunity to, to put in a, a lifetime's worth of work into them, that's just going to speed up too. Um, and so, yeah, the, I mean, as we push through that, I, I think the, the next few generations are going to be interesting, to say the least, as far yeah. as adjusting to that rapid advance of, of technology and innovation and kind of where we wind up landing and it'll you know like any economic transition it'll be ugly because we're transitioning into yeah. something new and that, that's what i thought was remarkably true about the star trek economy was that there's such a huge emphasis about on innovation not just that they value innovation but it's clear that each individual like a huge portion of what they consider their jobs is simply to keep up. Mm. Which and is, and yeah. it's and it's clear that that's going to be the truth for yeah. the rest of human civilization unless we hit a major apocalyptic setback. Mm. Right. Well, I think that's a that that's a great place to end. Always ended on an apocalyptic setback. But no, yeah, just the the idea that you know what we're staring down the barrel of is a fair amount of our time being spent just keeping up uh and and you know that's going to have impacts on society so uh yeah gus thanks for coming on the podcast thanks a lot dave and uh uh yeah hope to have you back on we could i mean honestly there there are dozens of derivations of just just futurist the uh, futurist podcast hey i again (laughs) god i want that job hey you can go out and get that job. <laughs> I can get that business card. Get your side hustle on. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's been good. All right, and that's our show. I uh, hope you enjoyed the uh, uh, I guess a uh, somewhat different topic. I, I mean, even the, the, the Star Trek tie-in aside, um, I, I, you know, as I'd mentioned in the show, I'm hugely fascinated with, with the futurism and, and especially, again, applying uh, economic ideas 
you know, two thoughts like that. Uh, so I imagine we'll do similar shows, not, not all of them centered around Star Trek, of course, uh, probably, you know, centered around different kind of grounding points, but really focused on, again, those kind of futurist ideas. Um, if you want to tell me why I'm wrong, or, uh, if you want to tell Gus why he's wrong, uh, you can always, uh, come out and join the Facebook group, uh, leave a comment there, uh, be nice, Gus is a nice guy, um, if you are not on Facebook and still want to chime into the conversation, you can always email me at, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong, all one word, at gmail.com, uh, again, all one word, no apostrophe, no, uh, no comma. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music I use in the intro and outro. And, uh, if you've got yourself a, a, a minute, uh, I, I would ask that you take that minute and, uh, use it to leave a, uh, a nice five-star review on iTunes. Uh, if you get yourself two minutes, then, uh, leave that five-star review and a comment, uh, in the, uh, reviews. Uh, like I say, always happy to hear what uh, people think and, you know, make improvements if uh, you guys think I need to make any. And uh, those reviews do help get us uh, bumped up in the uh, charts and uh, noticed by more people. So they are always appreciated. Uh, and with that, uh, we will be back next week with another chapter from The Wealth of Nations. Uh, and as always, thank uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, with that, I've been Dave Yost. It's been okay. Let me tell you why you're wrong.